Welcome to the I Am Podcast. My name is Carl Weaver, and I am the website content manager at I Am. If you have any suggestions for the I Am Podcast, you can email me at carl.weaver at iamovers.org. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us again. Today's podcast, this episode, is a recap of a conversation held by Chuck White and Brian Lipperopoulos of IAM. They hosted a panel discussion with Jim Wise and Brian Vickers of Pace Consulting regarding preliminary election results and the possible impacts the election and other political initiatives may have in the movie industry. This is recorded November 4th. Um, I did quite a bit of editing to take out some of the stuff like the presidential sections. As we sit, uh, it's not decided, but it's looking pretty well set. So I I learned in uh, journalism classes in college not to make uh, declarations that I can't stand by, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, But that part I cut out. You can watch it on I Am Learning, and I'll put the link to the full video uh, in the show notes. But what I left in there was uh, significant discussion about the Senate and House races, as well as many legislative issues. So please give it a, a listen and uh, hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, it is 1 p.m. Eastern time, and we have people trickling in from all over the country, and we have people coming in from uh, even uh, across the world. So I think we should get started, guys. Um, so for everybody who's tuning in, my name is Brian Lipperopoulos with the International Association of Movers. I'm joined by the boss, Mr. Chuck White, and our government relations team, uh, Mr. Jim Wise and Mr. Brian Vickers. Jim and Brian are going to be giving us uh, the lowdown on what is, it's not what just happened, it is what is happening uh, with the election. Obviously, this will have a big impact on everybody who's tuning in. That's the reason you're here. So without further ado, uh, I want to turn it over to um, Jim and Brian. Tell us what the, what the heck <laughs> is going on and tell us. I, I think we should start with the presidency, but get into the Senate and the House. And then after that, we'll, we'll look at what the implications are for the industry, um, for all of the people on the call. So Jim and Brian, take it away. Uh, I do want to uh, maybe move on to the Senate map and and see what that means, and then the House, and 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 then get into what it, what all this means for our industry. Yeah, and I'd, I'd ask Jim and Brian to frame that Senate and w- what it means. I mean, we've got divided houses now with uh, currently yeah. the Democrats running the House and the uh, uh, Republicans running the Senate. There was a lot of talk about the potential flip. Uh, of the Senate to um, Democrat and even a further strengthening of the Democrats in the House. Can you can you really speak to those kinds of topics, please? Yeah, sure. And let me, if I can, just uh, throw in one quick little vignette to really underscore just how uh, chaotic this is. Um, Maine is one of two states that attribute their electoral votes by whichever presidential candidate wins the congressional seat. Maine has two congressional seats. Um, Mr. Biden wins 
Maine. Maine has been called for, for Mr. Biden. Um, so the, he, he picks up the two Senate uh, electoral votes for sure. Uh, and he picks up um, the electoral vote in Maine's first congressional district. In Maine's second congressional district, the Democrat wins the House seat, but Mr. Trump wins the presidential vote. So Maine's four electoral votes get split three to one, but that is a indication of just how really crazy this is where um, um, a, a Democrat wins the congressional seat, but Mr. Trump wins the congressional seat at the presidential level. That, that's such an encapsulation of how chaotic this is. All right. I'm, I'm sorry, Senate. Brian, would you like to say something here? Because I've just been yakking my mouth. <laughs> uh, hey, Brian, do you want to go to the next slide? And then we'll kind of talk a little bit about, about this. So right now, they've, uh, the House, uh, is Republicans and the Democrats in the Senate have essentially traded, uh, have kind of traded, traded seats. Uh, the what leads a lot of the political commentary over the past 12 hours, eight hours, four hours to say is that the Senate Republicans will keep the Senate. Mitch McConnell will come back uh, as the majority leader is kind of due to where some of these uh, vote tallies are, even though these races haven't been called. Uh, Alaska and Dan Sullivan, he's up by nearly 30 points. That was supposed to be a relatively close race. Uh, within six or eight points. He was always favored, but not by much. Uh, and he seems to have done very well from what's come in. Uh, Susan Collins has uh, maintained a fairly consistent lead here with now 85% in. Um, it, doesn't, it seems that uh, uh, John James in Michigan uh, is uh, still, you know, Michigan votes will come in. This may change a bit, but he's been consistently uh, ahead the past uh, the past morning in, in over uh, Gary Peters and then Brian if you go to the next slide is we'll highlight a couple more here uh, Tom Tillis seems to have hung on in North Carolina and that's a little more certain in Michigan you can see uh, the amount of of, uh, of Senate uh, of votes in and his lead has been again fairly consistent uh, Georgia is going to be a runoff uh, so we're going to have to see how that goes. But they, you know, outside of uh, Mark Kelly uh, winning the seat in, uh, in Arizona and the Colorado seat uh, by John Hickenlooper, who uh, defeated Cory Gardner, there, do there doesn't seem to be the certainty of Democratic pickups within the Senate. Uh, the indications are right now, and of course, this could change as more votes come in uh, and everything's counted. The indications are that the Senates are going the Senate Republicans are going to be able to retain that uh, majority uh, moving in, and that means uh, that means a lot uh, for what's going to happen. And we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the policy implications of that, uh, but really how uh, potentially uh, Joe Biden uh, would be able to govern uh, direct legislation through through the House and the Senate, and and what he might want to do independently through uh, executive order. Uh, which uh, President Trump has, has done uh, and utilized that aspect as well many, many times. Jim, any, any thoughts on the Senate race here and questions? No, I think the only one was uh, the observation that the Alabama seat uh, flipped uh, from a Democrat over to Republican. Um, so that, 
that, that there's uh, obviously a pickup for the Republican majority in the Senate. Um, and can you, uh, can you talk and, about? And really, I was going to say, I'm can talking. you just talk best case, worst case numbers in Senate? I mean, we are, I think, is it 53-47 now, uh, Republican majority in the Senate. What are the numbers you think, best case, worst case for the Republicans? Obviously, they're going to, you're, you're thinking they're going to keep control of the Senate. At what numbers are you thinking, based on what we've seen? And I'll, I'll yield to Brian on this as well, but um, um, we know that, um, that this uh, uh, Georgia seat with Georgia seat with the Kelly Lauper seat that's going to run. Or that's going to run. I know I get a little bit of feedback. I get a little bit of feedback. Jim, why don't you uh, defer to Brian and just mute your line for a second and come back? So let's get Brian to. Uh, uh, weigh in on that, and maybe you can sort out the audio issues a little bit. Um, Brian, why don't you go ahead? Uh, sure, and it really, it um, it really just depends on how these races come out. If 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 you had to make a guess, and then of course, assuming that Georgia is going to have a runoff in January with a, a Democrat and a Republican, obviously going head to head against each other, uh, you could have uh, you know anywhere from you know. 52 uh, Republican majority, seat majority, that includes the independents that caucus with the Democrats, it could go as high as, um, as 55. It, you know, it, it's really, right now, it's just, it's really unknown. I, I think the, the conventional wisdom for one o'clock Eastern, one <laughs> thirty Eastern uh, right now is uh, the Republicans will have, will be able to hold on to that that majority lead, it, it, it be it, a handful of votes, could be by two, it could be by three or four. So, you, so you're yeah. thinking about 52 Republican senators is worst case uh, for the Republicans, and 55 is probably best case for them. Yeah, it, and yeah, and that's again just a guess based yeah. on, on on looking at the polls. It could it could change uh, these. You know, I mean, there you know, 93 percent of North Carolina is in. Tillis is up here. You can see by uh, about a hundred thousand votes. What's that remaining seven percent? Is it enough to is it enough to get it to a recount? Is it enough to sure. uh, push Cunningham up? Probably not. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know anything is anything's possible. It's just looking like the Republicans are going to hang on to it, and and kind of that's what we're thinking in in the next slides uh, moving ahead. Some scenarios. And, and Jim, just just really quick, the, that your that that matches kind of your outlook at, from where we stand right now. Yeah, I'm gonna um, speculate that the Purdue Georgia seat. Um, we and again, not knowing where all those uh, votes in Georgia still are, but let's assume, and, and I think it's a safe assumption that that Purdue hangs on in Georgia. Um, the best scenario that I can I can see for the Dems is to be at 49 seats, um, um, and that would mean that uh, uh, the, the votes that are still outstanding in North Carolina are predominantly um, in uh, Democratic counties. But I don't think, as Brian has just indicated, that there are enough raw votes out there that are going to get Cunningham uh, past Tellus. So. Um, 
that would be my my assumption as to where the the best case scenario for the Dems would be. Okay, shall we move on to the to the next? Sure. All right, let's see. All right, uh, U.S. House of Representatives, Brian, take it away. Okay, um, so this is uh, this is from uh, an hour and a half ago. Um, it's just a staggering amount of House races uncalled, 58. Uh, that's not to say that the outcomes aren't kind of known, uh, but really the delay here is due to the just sheer amount of, of mail-in ballots and how different states are allowed to start counting, when they're allowed to start counting, and the process uh, connected to that. Uh, Democrats have been projected to hold on to the House. Uh, they were projected to gain, uh, I think the, the low end of the estimate was an additional 10 seats. Uh, that's not happened. Uh, it'll, in, in fact, they've lost several um, incumbent seats and, and a couple on the House Armed Services Committee that we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, and I think that the difference here is uh, the suburban swing districts that um, that they had a couple freshmen in from the midterm elections of 2018, uh, and some long contested suburban districts uh, simply didn't go their way. Uh, they ended up on four or five points or six points uh, to the wrong end of the ballot, and and the Republicans uh, picked uh, managed to pick those seats off to kind of uh, you know in an effort to kind of fight off what was a growing uh, majority for the Democrats in the House. So it, interesting, I, I think when we've got in a couple of days even more data coming in, uh, we'll see that Democrats generally underperformed in, in a lot of these suburban districts, or at worst, the Republicans were able to come in and, and hang on to you know, at least half of the really, really contested ones. Jim, you have any other thoughts on when I looked at this um, uh, just before we got on, um, there was not one Republican incumbent um, that had been defeated. There were a minimum of six Democrats, um, a minimum of six, who were defeated um, as, as of then, um, curiously including uh, two down in the Miami area, one of them, Donna Shalala, um, a former cabinet official. Um, and, and to Brian's point, um, some key um, uh, suburbs. In fact, um, the head of the, the, the chair of the Democratic con uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, Sherry Bustos, um, in a um, fairly moderate district that she won handily two years ago, is in the fight of her life, and I'm not sure she's coming back. Oh. Uh, so, I, 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 uh, um, all in all, um, I think Brian's got this just right. Um, the assumption that the Dems may pick up 10 seats in the House is probably wrong. Um, if anything, I think the Republicans um, pick up maybe 10 seats. The Democrats will retain control of the House, but um, A, at a, at a much uh, narrower margin, and B, uh, the Republicans that have gotten elected um, are going to be much more ideologically associated with with Mr. Trump than um, some of the moderate members that they replaced. And, and so that that split would be what if, if the Republicans pick up ten seats, um, you know, at the end of the day, what would that be uh, on the balance between Democrats and Republicans in the House? 
what would we be looking at like maybe 220 um uh, 221 222 democrats you need 218 and you've got control of the house but i think that uh, the dems may be somewhere around maybe 225 um, we've got a bunch of seats uh, actually still out in um, uh, on the West Coast that are still to be called as well. Um, and, and again, to Brian's point, just because of the sheer volume of mail-in votes that they just can't can't get through. So, so both houses of Congress could essentially be on the knife edge, you know, uh, you know, between yeah. who controls it, uh, you know, slight Republican majority in the Senate, slight Democrat majority in the House. I, I think can, I, can I talk about one and talk about one uh, <clears throat> house seat that's near and dear to the uh, the folks at IAM uh, one of our uh, inductees into the Hall of Honor Jeff Coleman ran uh, and was in a runoff uh, in a Republican runoff for a seat in uh, southern Alabama he lost in that runoff that was a strongly strongly Republican um, uh, district, uh, just checking the box to say that uh, the gentleman who beat uh, Jeff out in that runoff probably was easily elected uh, to the House. Is that correct? It's a pretty Republican district. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm okay. Just so, to uh, so I, I, I do want to move this along because we are starting to get um, some questions about you know what what does this all mean? You know we've kind of sketched it out from a high level. Now let's get into the actual policy implications for the industry uh, and how it will impact the people who are attending this. So uh, sh shall I go on to the next slide, Brian, and and take it from there? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And uh, and before we talk about this committee here, uh, Chuck, to your point, that was Barry Moore. And yes, he won by 30 points. They called that a while back. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah that was very sad. <laughs> Just wanted to put stuff back and put Jeff's yeah. name out there. So um, Brian has up uh, two committees here of of, of considerable uh, effort and, and jurisdiction to the IAM membership, in particular with the uh, with the PCS moves and the Defense Personal Property Program, which uh, significant amount of, of uh, IAM members are involved in directly right now. Uh, on the Senate side, was really kind of what we, we thought might happen. Um, Doug Jones lost and, and Martha McSally lost. They were the most vulnerable on the, uh, on the committee. Uh, Chairmen are coming back uh, in ranking and chairman order since it doesn't look at this moment that uh, the Democrats will gain control. Uh, Jack Reed of Rhode Island and, and Chairman Inhofe, of course, of Oklahoma. Uh, the subcommittee chair on readiness, uh, Dan Sullivan, who uh, who a lot of you know, have either met with him or his staff, is very involved in understanding of the GHC award process and the potential impact, particularly on some of the members um, in, in, in Arizona, in Alaska. Uh, will be, it looks like we'll be coming back. They just haven't called that race yet, but he is comfortably ahead. Um, Armed Services Chairman Adam Smith won easily. He uh, He's coming back on uh, on his full chair. A uh, little interesting here with the ranking member, uh, Mac Thornberry retired, uh, did not run for reelection. 
so the, the top three Republicans on Hask in, in seniority and uh, up for consideration right now, uh, uh, Congressman Wilson of South Carolina, who whom I know many uh, of the IAM members and, and a couple in his district have, have great relationships with him uh, and his staff, uh, Congressman Turner of Ohio and Mike Rogers of Alabama. Uh, so when they come to uh, have committee organizational uh, meetings and of course in discussions on lame duck leading up to that, they'll kind of take a look at who would be uh, set coming in uh, for that ranking member slot. Um, readiness uh, Subcommittee Chair, uh, Mr. Garamendi of California and uh, Doug Lamborn of, that says uh, California, that's an early morning typo, that's Colorado, of course. Uh, they, they both won their races and uh, the Democrats have lost uh, two off the committee. Uh, Republicans, none, of course, uh, Representative Small and, and Horn from um, New Mexico and Oklahoma uh, lost, and that was called very early on. Uh, they have not called the race for uh, Anthony Brindisi of, of New York, uh, the most junior member on the Hass Committee in a in a very uh, moderate district in uh, in New York State. Uh, but it looks like he will be losing that uh, as well. He's down double digits and has been since uh, the return started coming in and, and being posted about eight o'clock last night. So that's kind of how the committee is shaking out. A couple, uh, a couple changes, but but really not, not that many. Um, had some of these more competitive uh, Senate uh, races uh, come to play out uh, differently. Uh, uh, Tom Tillis uh, of North Carolina, and and of course that's not decided as of yet. But uh, it's pretty much going to be uh, the same cast of of, uh, of members and, and staff coming coming back in. Jimmy, have anything to add to that or check any questions? Yeah, my only question, or not even question, uh, comment is we've, we've formed some really solid relationships with some of these folks. Uh, Dan Sullivan on the Senate side from Alaska, uh, due to his oversight of the readiness uh, subcommittee, which has oversight of household goods, um, and uh, Chairman Adam Smith uh, with the House Armed Services Committee side. And Obviously, he's our broker uh, when it comes to DOD issues. So, you know, we will continue as IAM to uh, work with them through Jim and Brian Vickers and uh, continue to get the issues in front of them. They know who we are. They know Jim and Brian quite well. They've got a great working relationship with them. And um, again, those that are on uh, the broadcast that have uh, offices in some of the districts of the people that we have addressed here, it, it, always be prepared. We may be reaching out to you. There's nothing like walking in to a congressional office or making communication with a congressional office and having a constituent on your arm to walk in and say, I'm a voter in your district. I'm a voter in your state. I have a business in your state. I have paid taxes in your district. Those kinds of things make a big difference and it gains the ear of these people. And we, we need your representation as we push forward on a number of issues that are gonna be near and dear to many of our members' hearts. Thank, thank you, Chuck, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, so many 
members of, of IEM from leadership uh, on down have, have taken time out to, to come to the Hill uh, messaging not only about their, not only about the DP3, but you know, the, in the outsourcing and contract processing uh, process ongoing right now, uh, but to explain and, and kind of represent who this industry is. And we're going to continue those relationships uh, with, with the staff. And, and they understand the importance of following this process through, uh, making sure that it's fair to, uh, to the small and, and mid-sized uh, businesses within the household goods moving industry, absolutely, as well as everybody else. So we're going to continue that. I'm, I know Jim and I will be circling back up with Chuck and the executive committee at IAM uh, on, a, on a moving forward strategy as some of the uh, protests uh, begin to work themselves out and we get a little bit more information from the GAO. Okay, moving on. Uh, yeah. Moving on, Brian. There we go. Yeah, so um, moving away from the actual elections, we had a couple uh, different uh, areas of business. Uh, this is the non-marijuana uh, uh, ballot measures, which seem to be dominated by recreational marijuana uh, uh, use across the country. Uh, but we try to focus on a few that were uh, key to businesses and key to where uh, our folks have operations. I'm going to jump to the bottom first. Uh, Florida, I believe, was the only state uh, that approved last night an, uh, a, a ballot initiative to increase the state's minimum wage. Often that's done through legislation at the state level, uh, but the voters, in, in addition to giving uh, President Trump the, the, the win for that state, also at the same time uh, wanted to see the, the state's minimum wage increase from $8.56 to $15 by 2026, which would be phased in over time, uh, which I thought was was of note. Uh, California, um, a couple big ones. I think the biggest is at the top there. It's the property tax split roll initiative. And basically what this means is if you owned a, a if you owned a commercial, if you own a commercial uh, property, not residential and not agriculture related, they, they were exempted from this initiative. Um, it would, and it was worth over, and it's worth over three million dollars. It would be over the next year and a half reassessed, and you would pay uh, an adjusted property uh, property tax on that. Uh, that money would be going to the schools uh, to pay for different items in in the school system within the state. Uh, it's going to be another week and a half, two weeks before we know where it's at. Right now, the measure's down three points, fifty-one forty-eight. Uh, that will change potentially over time as as we get more information and more of the of the votes in. But uh, you know this applies to warehouses, uh, uh, office locations, uh, just a, an entire class of uh, of businesses that have essentially, uh, it, as long as they haven't purchased it, uh, you know repurchased it. But say you bought the property 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, you pay the, the property tax based on the assessed value of that, um, of that location, and that hasn't changed. Uh, so this could make a big difference um, in terms of uh, costs for uh, IAM members, obviously, with operations and, and locations or facilities out in California. So we'll keep an eye on that. There was a huge business push within the state. 
to push back against that. And I think uh, uh, CMSA, California Moving Storage Association, Chuck, if, if I'm not incorrect, was also part of that uh, in-state in Sacramento and through some of their advertising efforts. Yep, they were part of a coalition fighting that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Prop, Prop 22, uh, so the voters approved to keep gig workers uh, classified as independent contractors. Uh, this is just interesting for a couple of reasons. So this applies to uh, gig, gig workers within, uh, you know, who receive their work through apps. Uh, it was written by uh, uh, some of the, the folks that do work on behalf of Lyft and, and Uber. Uh, but it was interesting that the voters decided to make uh, to make that decision to keep them. There was a huge push to do that, to not pull them on full-time employee status, which would uh, require a, a host of benefits and costs for I think the, the dogs may have showed uh, up. Sorry about that. Yeah. So, uh, and, and uh, expanding consumer privacy. So if you have a, a business there, you're, you're going to, uh, and you're getting information from consumers through through your website or through your business itself, you're going to be expected to provide a, a little bit uh, more security in that manner. Um, there's a italicized note here, injunction and court proceedings ongoing for truck drivers who are not classified currently uh, through the litigation process under AB5, uh, the, the uh, state's uh, ABC uh, independent, independent contractor. Uh, test. That's ongoing. Uh, if that changes, we'll let you know. Okay. I, 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 we have a few questions in the chat, and uh, I don't want to miss out on asking them. Um, Terry Head, uh, we all know him, uh, former president, president emeritus of IAM, asked uh, Jim and Brian whether you, uh, you guys still believe that IAM is best served by not having a political action committee or a PAC. Um, <laughs> uh -oh. He threw the gauntlet down here. <laughs> I just dropped okay. the bombs right in the middle. Okay, I, 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 I'm just going to say this. Um, it is incredibly time-consuming and expensive for somebody to run for public office. And to the extent um, that uh, uh, organizations and individuals can provide that type of support for them, it is a real enhancement to um, the cultivation of a relationship. Um, um, for an entity like IAM, the manner in which um, a PAC would be formed can be a little bit challenging, um, um, and, and that challenge is not lost on me. But in my view and, um, and, and, and grasping how, how tough it is um, for members to raise the money that they need to raise to run for office to the extent um, that IAM, either through an organization or through individual members, can participate in the process in that manner. I, I think it ultimately advances uh, IAM's stated policy goals. So and in my view, if there was a way to uh, overcome some of the challenges structurally to allow IEM to have a PAC, um, my, I would have a strong vote for it. Well, I'm, I'm interested in that uh, because, you know, we have such an international presence right now in our organization and uh, funds coming from outside the U.S. are very difficult, in my understanding, 
to uh, be provided to candidates. So 80% right now of our membership is outside the US. So any funding for a PAC would come, have to come from 20%. Now we are in a, a, a real initiative right now to try to increase our domestic um, presence uh, with the uh, move by AMSA to dissolve themselves and merge into the American Trucking Association. If we do see an uptick in the number of members that we have here in the United States, I'm, I'm very open to looking at the formation of a PAC, but again, having to realize that the funding of that PAC and what it would bring forth for the membership as a whole, it would really be focused on those US members versus our worldwide membership. So again, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it, uh, and as we grow our domestic membership, I think I become more and more open to that. Though I think we had a really great um, fundraising initiative in the last year uh, that we utilized to uh, build relationship with a number of offices um, to the tune of fundraising in the six figure numbers um, and provided some pretty significant dollars to a number of. Uh, congressional and senatorial offices. So I think the ability to raise funds is there, but again, to have an ongoing entity, a PAC, both the administrative issues that we have to deal with and the fundraising initiatives, the time-consuming efforts that would put place on the staff, um, there are some concerns there as well. So we'll have to have more discussion, Jim and Brian about how we might be able to push that forward. All right, and, yeah. and I am going to, we are about 10 minutes away from the top of the hour, so I'm just gonna keep pushing us along here uh, so we can cover as much ground as we can. Again, let us know what questions you have, but uh, Brian, I'm gonna move it on, okay? Um, yeah, COVID-19 relief legislation, what, what, what are we looking at for the prospects of that? Right, so we'll move through these quickly. Um, these are the top points uh, for both Republicans and Democrats at obviously different levels. Renewed and expanded eligibility for Paycheck Protection Program and broad-based corporate liability for companies operating during the pandemic. I think those are top two for uh, the Republican side. Uh, extension of, of enhanced unemployment benefits, which caused a bit of a stir uh, through many industries uh, early on is there as well as um, money to states and local governments uh, and and COVID testing protocol funding. So next slide, Brian. Before you go on, Brian, this is uh, personal. It's IAM focused. Um, we are a nonprofit a designated uh, tax-wise as a 501c6. 501c6s were not part of any of the relief efforts uh, previously, were not to be included. There was an initiative on board uh, to have 501c6s be able to take advantage, just like many of our members did of the PPP. W where does that stand, do you think, moving forward? So um, it, it's a very good shot. In the slide after this, I will, I will touch on that for sure. Uh, it, it, it stands a very good shot. Uh, there's a couple things that they want to fix in terms of the PPP, not just to give it uh, the authorization to have the money lent out to the businesses, but they want uh, uh, potential uh, a second chance or double dip into it uh, for businesses that can demonstrate a X percentage of loss 
of revenue compared to the previous year, as well as expanding to uh, the nonprofits and the trade associations, which employ a significant, significant amount of folks um, all across the country. Uh, so, but yeah, so we've got, um, sorry, so we've got uh, federal, two opportunities here. Um, federal government uh, and agency funding expires on December 11th. There is a very limited potential to have some elements included in this. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know the, the exact possibility of that happening, but I don't, <laughs> I don't see it as very high. Uh, if the makeup is Republican Senate, House Democrat, and if uh, Joe Biden wins the presidency, uh, looking, looking into January for a package that is larger than the Republicans' 500 billion, but smaller than three or two and a half trillion, um, something that could pass the House, uh, get approved by the Senate, and, and obviously Biden would sign um, whatever would come his way if he wins presidency. If Trump wins the presidency, uh, you know, it's, you know, this, this package uh, would look even more different and, and could potentially be even smaller. Uh, but those are the two targets out there right now. One's in a lame duck, of course, uh, and, um, and one is after the new Congress comes in, litigation, challenges, that's all gonna potentially impact the timing here. So no one, no one knows for certain. What is known is uh, hopefully by the end of the first quarter of 2021, uh, something is agreed to pass. So these things have dragged on now since, uh, since April. All right, so I'll, I'll move it on to the next. Any questions on that or yeah. just keep going? Yeah, just keep going. So uh, Chuck mentioned this on the on the on the right side of your screen: expansion of to 501c6s and <laughs> other nonprofits. Uh, the requirements in the latest package from Republicans, and this provision has been included in in almost all of them. Uh, it's pretty basic: fewer than 300 employees, less than 10% of the annual annual budget spent on lobbying activities. Um, IAM is fine there, and uh, it, you know, the obvious PPP funding would need to be reopened in order for this to be included, but that would kind of all go together. Uh, again, it's to expand uh, it to uh, more of the non-traditional uh, business, uh, small business model that's been able to really take advantage of it successfully. The other part of this, which may be included and, and hopefully uh, would be retroactive at this point, is, uh, is how the funds received would be treated by the IRS. Um, there was the assumption made when the when the money went out that uh, ordinary business tax deductions uh, would be able to be applied to the money received and spent in in the appropriate manner by the businesses as normal. Uh, then the IRS came out uh, early this summer with a rule that said no, uh, because the money was given and provided in a forgivable loan, loan format. Um, it would be a double tax benefit if it could also then be written off. Um, I, I don't think that was the intent of, of the vast majority of both Democrats and Republicans when they made this money available through the relief package, and hopefully that will be addressed here um, in the in the next uh, relief package and also become retroactive. But those are two really key areas. Um, you know, a lot of the industry has used it, so. Uh, next, Brian. Okay, potential impact here. Um, 
temporary seasonal workforce uh, H2B uh, visas. I know utilized by several uh, IAM member companies. Uh, there is a broad-based ban uh, put on them by the Trump administration. Uh, the Biden administration would give them uh, that uh, very serious consideration and overturning it. Uh, there is litigation right now that uh, did reverse the ban, but only for uh, a handful of companies within uh, the NFIB and a couple uh, other uh, business-focused or business-based uh, trade groups. Uh, but that is some precedent, if nothing else, for it to be reversed further on. Uh, if, if Trump were to win re-election, he's given no indication that that would be overturned. He sees it as a pro-America, uh, pro pro-business approach. Uh, so we'll see what happens. That's one thing that could happen if, if Joe Biden is elected. Next, Brian. Uh, FMCSA and DOT. Um, there'll be a, a bunch of different issues should, again, the caveat, should Biden win, um, that they would be able to do through regulatory process without the need to pass legislation through the House and Senate. Uh, one of those is around driver detention. Uh, right now, the uh, FMCSA and DOT has collected voluntarily different information, had feedback and listening sessions on this. Uh, but I, I, I would foresee a, a more aggressive approach to, uh, to get a compulsory collection and process. And then from the information that's found in, uh, potentially uh, look at uh, compensation to the driver uh, by the company, depending, of course, on the findings and the information received. But that's one really big kind of target out there uh, that uh, that's uh, that a Democratic administration and, and appointee to the DOT would look at. Brian, on, on that issue, are we are we tying that kind of the, to the independent uh, worker paradigm? Is that is what? that kind of uh, meshed together there? No, it's 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 similar. It's it's got parallels to it, Chuck, but it's not it's not directly connected. And I'll talk about. That I think Brian in the next slide. Okay. Next one. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, okay. So so yeah. So this this would run under under the DOL, the independent contractor status, and I am submitted comments on this before the proposal uh, timeframe came out. But basically, uh, you know, in our comments and within the proposal itself, it, it set out a few factors uh, to. You know, provide some assurances to our member companies that uh, they truly utilize uh, independent contractors, whether that's at, at the warehouse or the driver level. Uh, and the DOL uh, contractor rule basically, you know, makes a little more clear and provides a little more leeway in order to do that uh, from a from an employer and worker uh, standard. You can be an independent contractor if you've got some flexibility. Uh, able to choose assignments and able to, for the drivers, uh, bring in bring in aspects of, uh, of of different parts of it as well uh, to the work. Uh, this proposal is going to be finalized, we believe, in January uh, before a new administration or the Trump administration uh, is uh, decided that they've won the election. Uh, it will be finalized. Uh, there's ways to undo it uh, if uh, the Biden administration would like to do so, uh, but without a, a majority in the Senate and, and without winning control of the Senate, 
uh, it would more likely than not be litigated through the courts and that will take some time to do. So um, we're looking at this here in the next really month and a half, but we'll keep an eye on it. Next slide. I think we're, uh, and just uh, big, bigger items here. What's possible? A highway bill reauthorization and an infrastructure package is possible um, with, a, with a divided uh, set of government, House Republican uh, and, or, and, or, and or the president. Uh, both parties want this. Uh, there's many things they agree on. Um, obviously there's things they're far apart on as with everything else, and that would be funding. It's uh, spending the amount spent. And then uh, obviously what it's spent on within the infrastructure and what it's spent on within highway reauthorization. Uh, we've seen things, uh, additional uh, money for, for truck parking, uh, that, that would be included. But I think the, the bigger part, if the, if the Democrats um, are, are drafting this from the House side, was uh, what in that legislation would be areas that we would need to look at in terms of potential driver requirements or company requirements in, in the in the moving uh, and transportation space. Um, how, do, how do you believe that they would propose to pay for this, a highway bill or an infrastructure package? I, We've got huge deficits as we're speaking now. They've got that. It, you know, the, the increase in the, uh, the federal gas tax has been kicked around um, as, as one that has, excuse me, support um, from from I know a lot of the trucking interests uh, and, and a lot of industry. Uh, there's also the prospect of, of targeting uh, of targeting the folks that are on the on the road more often than the passenger right. cars, uh, and so that would that would be a, a heavy tilt uh, towards industry or versus truck. versus the public, the trucks, yeah. and they don't have to uh, be. Uh, be be of a certain size. So it could be labeled just any commercial vehicle. Right. Uh, the federal gas tax increase, um, unless it was a really massive increase, which wouldn't be legislatively uh, palatable for Republicans to pass, even though they in general are OK with the concept of it, uh, th that's a heavy lift. So, yeah, who pays for it? Um, that is out there. They can tap into different things, uh, underground storage, tank funds, and some of the things that have been appropriated but not spent. We can look at that in different agencies. Uh, but that, that's kind of the, the, the possibility. I only put those two up there because they're the, the two biggest ones where they have agreement on issues uh, more often than not, uh, if not uh, how to pay for it. Uh, and what's not going to pass? Uh, Real quick, there's nothing that's going to pass uh, repealing these these tax the, the tax reform if the Republicans uh, retain uh, control of the Senate. Uh, Mitch McConnell will not bring it up to the floor. They don't need a huge majority for him to not take it up. So that's not going anywhere. Uh, climate change, cap and trade, border adjusted carbon tax, um, environmental justice reform, which would have operational considerations for industries. Uh, and businesses owned in industrial areas depend upon, depending upon where they are in the country, uh, that's not going to pass either um, if Republicans keep the Senate. So again, uh, look at the top of the screen. If Biden wins and Republicans retain control of the Senate, that's key to this. If things get, uh, get coming out different, um, this could be a different scenario of what's, uh, what's going to be 
what's going to be possible. Jim, do you have anything to add to some of these comments here? No, no, I, I know we're pressed for time, so I think you're spot on. And I think, Brian, we got one more slide, maybe? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, and this is important. Uh, so the Biden-Harris campaign put out a, a specific policy on, on PCS. It's the first I've seen in, in a presidential uh, platform. Uh, it's kind of right there with their energy policy and, and how they want to, what they want to do with transportation. But um, this is, this on the left here, this comes directly from their, from their site. System is expensive and it's broken and has negative outcomes. So you're going to take that, that policy, which, uh, you know, Department of Defense has been looking at, uh, at the direction of the NDAA uh, in report language now for, uh, for at least two or three years, uh, the impact on increasing stays. And you're going to combine that, I think, a little bit with how federal agencies, so you're looking at other big movers, so GSA, DOD, uh, uh, State Department, and, and some of the other big federal agencies that, that are moving, and kind of how they are seeing their workforce go in the future. Um, you know, we've, we've had articles come out with, with uh, DOD saying, hey, you know, the Pentagon, one of the most secure facilities in the entire country, uh, if they're talking about, you know, extending remote work for someone coming in from Arizona without having to move here, and the other government agencies are also looking at uh, telework, and not just telework, but, you know, permanent remote work for a certain segment of the business, how is that going to impact IAM uh, members and the volume of moves they're running through either the government channels uh, and, and, you know, a similar parallel potentially to, to the private industry and the company. Uh, the company moves as well. So uh, again, it, it, it's really driven by COVID. I mean, the PCS statement that the self here would have come out without COVID, uh, but when you tied in with what's been happening um, and living right outside of Washington, D.C., you know, even the local uh, employees, by and large, aren't, haven't gone back into any of the federal agencies downtown. Uh, the Congress is closed for visitors. Uh, the congressional offices are Zoom meetings and phone calls still. Uh, so how these things kind of evolve over time, well, uh, something that we'll be keeping an eye on and communicating and, and coordinating with, with Chuck and, and Dan and, and the team at IAM and, and the executive committee and, and you all as well. Yeah, I think this is critical. We've been hearing a lot in the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Acts over the last few years about the, in quotes, problems with uh, the DOD moving programs. We've been hearing about dissatisfaction in military families regarding having to move so much, and that, that becomes a readiness and a retention issue. So this policy statement doesn't surprise me, and we haven't really seen much of an effect in terms of the number of moves, even with these kinds of statements in the NDAA in the past. You've hit the nail on the head. But as we have moved into a COVID environment and they have been forced into remote work, been forced into uh, fewer moves as a result of COVID, they, I think the realization within the DOD is they can continue to exist without being forced to move their personnel. And so th this is concerning to us. 
something that we have to keep an eye on and something. So we, we've got all of these different factors that are pulling on the defense personal property program, whether it be uh, the global household good contract, whether it be COVID, whether it be a new administration and a new philosophy in this post COVID environment. So really have to be active and aware and um, involved in the decision-making policies and processes around the PCS program. All right, Brian, I'm gonna go on to the, um, maybe the last one. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll let you take it away in a second, but I, I, I think you guys have done a great job of giving us an overview of all the various issues that, that flow downward from these uh, president, Senate, House, and even state elections. So um, thank you for that. W how do you want to wrap this up? What are your uh, closing if, comments? If, if, let me wrap. I don't want to wrap it up, but I want to make one statement just to the, the folks that are listening. Um, I, I've been with the association now going on 16 years. I think it was Terry who initially brought Jim uh, and Pace, uh, which is the name of the organization, into working with IAM. We, we've not had to bring on full-time government relations folks. We've contracted with the Pace companies now for 20 plus years. And I feel like we've got some of the best government relations representatives that money can buy. We gain access to offices that I never dreamed I'd walk into. And I applaud Jim and Brian for the work that they do for the association and any of the members that are on the um, on this session that have dealt with them understand what they bring to the table. So I just want to say a big thank you to Jim and Brian for that. You um, guys can close it out. Thank, I'll just say this, Chuck. Thank you um, and Brian um, uh, for helping to arrange this today. Um, it has been an absolute privilege uh, to represent this association, you guys do a great job um, on behalf of your members. It's a um, it's an industry that we are proud to represent, um, and you have given us all the resources and assets that we could ever ask for to help do to uh, represent you as as well as we can um, before the agencies and before Congress. And Brian Vickers, I don't know if you would like to add anything. Yeah, just echoing Jim's. Uh, it's a privilege to to get to work with with the IAM staff and all the members. Uh, they're engaged. You guys are active. Uh, we want to continue helping uh, that along, so thank you. Uh, we've got our contact information there. Uh, don't ever hesitate to send us an email. If you have a question about this or a follow-up, uh, we'll be providing a, uh, a report uh, probably early next week when we've got some information uh, a little more uh, solid on what's been floating out right now in terms of results coming in. Uh, but it'll be kind of a deep dive into the committee. So we'll touch on some of what we talked about here, uh, but it has a little bit more complete results as hopefully most stuff will be counted uh, by the end of the week. So look for that early next week and, um, you know, and on the uh, advocacy section of the website. And uh, thank you guys. And I'll just close by saying that uh, we will make this recording available on I Am Learning and uh, the, the slides will accompany that on, on I Am Learning as well. 
And we want to know from you if you like this format. Is this a great way? Is this a way that you want to be kept updated on what is happening? Uh, you know, both what, what are we doing to advocate upon uh, for you, as well as what are the decision makers doing that affect your business? So I've dropped my email in the uh, chat. Uh, and we would obviously welcome your your feedback on I am learning or anywhere else. So let us know what you like, and these resources will be available on I am learning. Thank you. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Castbox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to the IAM podcast. If there's ever anything you need from IAM, you can contact us at membership at iamovers.org or contact us by going to the contact us page on the IAM website at iamovers.org. Thank you for joining us and we will talk to you next time.